I would like to take a look at our epistle lesson this morning. Uh, If you would, please turn with me to page 790, page 790 of your pew Bibles or in your own Bible. Uh, We're going to be looking at the letter of St. Paul to the Philippians, chapter 1, beginning at verse 9, our epistle lesson today. So just a few quick points, I suppose. I would just like to focus in and point out the communal nature of being a Christian that St. Paul emphasized in the first sentence of our epistle lesson. So page 790, Philippians 1.9. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. The communal nature of being a Christian is pointed out right there. The fellowship in the gospel. The word translated fellowship here is the Greek word koinonia. It means a close association with another. A communion. A close relationship. Hence, in ancient literature, it is a favorite expression for the marital relationship as the most intimate between human beings. It's that kind of very close, close connection. And says St. Paul, it is a close relationship in the Evangelion, the Greek word for gospel, which of course means the proclaimed good news that God has for human beings. Scholar A.T. Robertson notes that the particular kind of partnership or fellowship involved is the contribution made by the Philippians for the spread of the gospel. This close association of St. Paul with the Philippians, for which he offers thanksgiving to God every time he thinks of the Philippian Christians, is the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ. This makes quite a bit of sense when one remembers that St. Paul's entire life at this point, and for many years is a missionary life. Preaching the gospel, setting up churches, catechizing the people, raising up leaders, ordaining deacons and priests. So St. Paul's entire world at this point is gospel mission. So when he thinks of the Philippians, he is immediately taken to their co-work with him, their close association with him in this gospel presentation. Now this sense of close association in this work gets filled out in the apostles' uh, continued writing, in fact, at the end of the same sentence. You all are partakers of, with me of grace. You all are partakers with me of grace. You all is definitely the plural form of the word you. Well, it's as close as we get in English uh, as something particular. In our current English, we cannot tell if you means one of you or all of you unless you hear the word all after you, you all. Now down in the South and in Texas, it's y'all. So y'all, this is confusing, but hang with me. Y'all is singular even though it's a contraction of you all. If you're in the South, someone says, y'all, 
They're likely talking about you, the individual. So plural in the South is all y'all. And you hear it all the time. All y'all come over for dinner, okay? <laughs> it's, it's um, it, language is so fascinating. But many languages are not as limited as current contemporary English in that singular plural of the word you. Again, in our current English, you can mean singular or you can mean plural. So you have to see who the person's looking at, pointing to, wave, you know, you guys come over for dinner with my hands moving like that, says you're all invited. You come for dinner today means I'm talking specifically to Michaela, right? Isn't it weird that our language has lost the details so that we have to now be able to see the hand motions to understand what's being said? English was not so limited, say, in Elizabethan, uh, Elizabeth's time. Elizabethan English is definitely much more distinct, uh, even in just that one word. Um, Greek tells us what is meant by the word you. In the case of our epistle lesson today, not surprisingly, given the context, every instance of the word you in your English translation, every instance is plural. You all. All you Christians living in Philippi are in close association with me, says St. Paul, in spreading the gospel. And as we just read, in receiving the gospel with me together. Literally, says Robertson, my co-sharers in grace. Grace prompted them to cooperate with him in defending and propagating the gospel and to suffer for its sake. This grace is, of course, the very foundation for this Christian relationship with one another at all. Without the grace, there is no desire to share the good news. The grace is the immediate and ongoing benefit of that good news of Jesus Christ. With this foundation of our text, please note the prayer our pastor, St. Paul, has for those who share with him this grace and this work. So with this foundation of fellowship, And mutual receiving of grace, which of course gives us that fellowship. Now note St. Paul's prayer in the latter part of our our, um, epistle. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. That you may approve the things that are excellent. That you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. He prays for all these Christians in the city of Philippi that their love would become greater and greater, that they would give their assent to excellence, that they would be sincere and non-offensive, and that they would be filled with the fruits of righteousness. Two basic questions out of this text. One, 
Do we aim for these goals in our lives? Do you aim for those goals in your life? Two, do we aim for these goals together as one fellowship of gospel proclaimers in word and deed? Firstly, these are fantastic things to pray for in our lives, just like St. Paul prayed for them in the Philippians' life. More love, more excellence, more kindness and honest living, and more fruit of the gospel in our lives. My friends, love is the supreme virtue of the Christian life. We cannot possibly have too much love in our hearts for God and for His people and His creation. It's not possible. That's a prayer that we should always have, and it should be a pursuit of ours all the time. Paul, in his second prayer request for the Christians in Philippi, is prefiguring his admonition four chapters later in this very same letter to the Philippians. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. In other words, this is how you approve the things that are excellent. He said that early in our passage today, four chapters later, he explicates that a bit. Paul couples sincerity with being non-offensive, which contextualizes the sincerity. In this context of Philippians chapter 1, the Greek word means being without hidden motives or pretense. It means, means being pure. Yes, this can and will periodically give offense to those who despise this kind of living. Some people will be offended that you are not offensive. You've met them. We live in a really crazy world these days. It's going to happen. But I don't think the apostle has this type of person in mind. In general, living a pure and honest life with kindness and gentleness towards others might be a decent way to describe what St. Paul's talking about here. And this kind of living is easily coupled with being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. But I would submit that pursuing Christ's spirits leading in our lives is important in this regard, and that actually having in our minds the telos or the end result, that is giving glory to God, is also important. So when we read being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God, we actually have to keep this thing in mind, that we want to be filled with God's Spirit to more and more righteous behavior, more and more righteous fruits in our life. And if you don't have in mind and keep it in mind that what I'm doing and how I'm living is the glory and praise of God, you'll likely be glorifying and praising yourself. And that's not the telos we're supposed to have. We want to do all that we do. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, says St. Paul to the Philippians, do all to the glory of God. It's supposed to be an objective reality of how we live. I said that the second question from St. Paul's prayer list at the end of our epistle is, do we aim for these goals together 
as one fellowship of gospel proclaimers in word and deed. This is a very tough call, a very tough thing to do in our highly individualistic age. We don't tend to think of ourselves as part of a group, as part of a fellowship. Probably most recently, the closest we have gotten to that as a culture is our political grouping, since we just went through a rather major election. And it seems today that you are defined by your political allegiances more than anything. We basically define ourselves in two ways in this culture today. Politically, I am this, and sexually, I am this. And that seems to be about it. This is not the question that St. Paul has in mind or, or the context. He says we are part of a fellowship of Christians, one with another. In our culture, when we don't feel like we have a close relationship with our spouse, we just get rid of the spouse and find a new one. Well, we don't do that so much in our culture either. We get rid of them, and then we just get a new relationship without the promises and the commitments of marriage. That's really where we're at. Remember that St. Paul is here listing his prayer request for this group of Christians in Philippi. And don't get me wrong, they're not all in one church building on Sundays. Keep in mind, this is first century Christianity. It's being persecuted in Jerusalem right away and in that area. And Philippi is a different place. And, you know, hmm, what do we think about these people? Sometimes the verdict's still out. But they're not meeting together in a church building like this because they didn't have any time to build one. And the persecutions came on so immediately in the first century across the Roman Empire that most of the time they were meeting in homes. They didn't, they didn't have time or effort or money to build church buildings. So they're meeting in homes. So if you've got, in Jerusalem, you've got 3,150 Christians for sure uh, <clears throat> by the time Pentecost has come and gone. They're not all meeting in, in, in some great big Colosseum amphitheater. They're meeting in homes. And a small home maybe fits 20 to 30. A big home maybe sits uh, 50 or can hold 50 people maybe. So start dividing up how many, in, in our minds today and the way we use language, how many churches are there around Jerusalem. The same is true in Philippi. As church grows, they're not all meeting together, but they tend to know who one another are. They're sharing resources. They're sharing the letter from St. Paul is going to go from house church to house church, so to speak, and be read. And, and, and in between, they're fiercely copying it so that eventually every little individualistic church meeting hall of Christians in Philippi has a copy of it. So take your mind back to that time. You have that fellowship, that koinonia, with everyone in your culture. Do we have that today with every different Christian denomination and church in our culture? It's a challenge, isn't it? We're not often living the way that we should live. 
Remember that St. Paul is here listing his prayer requests for this group of Christians in Philippi. All his uses of the word you are plural. I pray that you would all have more love, that you would all approve excellent things, that you all would live a pure and honest life with kindness and gentleness towards others, that you all would be filled with righteousness, that you all would have in your mind the glory and praise of God in everything that you do. Now it sounds difficult, doesn't it? As if it was a cakewalk before when it was just me being concerned about me living this way. That's hard enough. It's difficult for each of us as individuals to do this. It's very difficult for us as a body, as a fellowship, to do it together. But that's what good Christian fellowship living looks like, is all of us having this behavior, this way of life together. And that is exactly what St. Paul is challenging us with. We need the closeness of family and the grace of Jesus to live in love. You know how hard that is in family living. Who are the people that you have the most problems with? The people that you're closest with? Because you will see their sin and they will see your sin more clearly than anyone else. We are often fooled into thinking, oh, what about, look at that perfect Christian family. There is no perfect Christian family. Some do better than others, for sure. And some days are better than others, aren't they? But those that we are closest with, and that means our closest friends, our colleagues, the ones that we are working with, you're going to know their problems. You're going to know their sin. They're going to sin against you, and you need to do what Jesus in the gospel said, to forgive. So that forgiveness is at the heart of love, which is that first prayer request. So we need that love, we need that forgiveness, because as we get closer to each other, we're going to be bumping into each other. We're going to be tripping over each other. And we're going to have to apologize and ask forgiveness. So we need the closeness of family, because a good family that knows each other works well together. A good working group, uh, think of an army platoon. They know each other. They know how to work with each other. They can accomplish quite a bit more than a group of guys that just get together, right? So we need that closeness of family, but we need the grace of Jesus to live in love and those close bonds so that we might spread the good news to others who need to hear it. Come to the table for grace, my brothers and sisters, and let us go out into the world and live this kind of life as a fellowship, as a church, so that others may hear of the love of God. Amen.